The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to episode 172 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, a show about how Latinx pop culture is reshaping mainstream entertainment. This week, I interview my good friend, Benjamin Odell, who is the CEO of Tripas Studios, the production company he and his friend Eugenio Derbez formed together. Their latest project is the remake of the French film The Valet, which premieres on Hulu on May 20th. In this conversation, Ben and I talk about his unique life and cultural upbringing, as well as the work Tripa Studios has accomplished in a short time. We discuss in detail the unique ways he and Eugenio have used Latino storytelling to successfully reach general audiences and why The Valet could very well be a culmination of that work. But before I talk to Ben Odell, it's time I give you my weekly recap of the top Latinx pop culture headlines in a segment I like to call... Jacked in. Let's begin with the top movie, TV, music news of the week. ABC has canceled the Latinx family drama Promised Land and the black and brown music drama Queens after just one season. Bad Bunny dropped a new summer album titled Un Verano Sin Ti. Oscar winner Ariana DeBose will star in the new season of HBO's Westworld and host the 2022 Tony Awards. Scream sequel will see the return of Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega. The People's Choice Latin Music Awards is set for Telemundo in 2023. Cristela Alonso sets second Netflix comedy special called the middle classy. Yalitza Paricio and Oscar Jainada will star in Apple TV's first all-Spanish language series, Familia de Medianoche, and Gabriel Fluffy Iglesias becomes the first comedian to perform and sell out Dodger Stadium. And in tech and social media news, Elon Musk says he would have Donald Trump back on Twitter. Apple has officially discontinued the iPod after 20 years. Netflix says they may launch their ad-supported tier by the end of the year. Spotify will shut down its radio-like listening app stations on May 16th. EA is replacing their soccer video games from FIFA to FC next year. TikTok will start to share ad revenue with creators. Instagram is testing out NFTs this week. Paramount Plus subscribers have grown to nearly 40 million, and Facebook is shutting down its podcasts and audio initiatives. The last time that we saw each other was back at the New York Latino Film Festival in 2019. You know, as you know, one of the biggest problems um, in Hollywood right now is a lack of representation. A year before the pandemic. So like, life was completely different. The business was completely different. Streaming hadn't really taken off the way yeah. it was. And I'm sure that for you, business was more traditional, yet, you know, um, progressing. Right. One of the first questions I asked you, I remember that day, was about your heritage. 
And I think yeah. that that's an important conversation to kind of begin this interview with, which is right. where were you born and where is the Odell name come from? <laughs> yeah, I was born in the suburbs of Philadelphia and uh, Odell uh, two generations ago was Odesky, Ukrainian Jews. Get uh, out of here. Yep. And, um, you know, my great grandfather came over from the Ukraine uh, in the, I want to say the early, uh, early 20s, I think, mm -hmm. um, and spoke no English, spoke only Yiddish. And uh, he worked at a, um, uh, a bagel making place. He didn't own it. He just <laughs> made the bagels. That's what he did. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, and then my, my grandfather changed the name from Odesky to Odell because there was a, you know, a large anti-Polish sentiment in the U.S. Um, and the, if you know, if you've ever heard Polish jokes, which you don't hear anymore, but when I was, <laughs> where they came from was that this whole class of uneducated Poles came to the U.S. because they were being persecuted in Poland. And right. so they, they were not educated enough and all these jokes about poles being stupid came from from that wave of immigrants interesting right and so it was very hard if you had a name that sounded polish to get loans and to get uh you know build businesses so my grandfather turned us into anglo-saxons and huh. uh that's what uh we don't have an apostrophe in the name but you know it's all part of the american immigrant experience is this why the irony of a white guy being the CEO of a Latino uh, studio, that sense of immigrant life and an understanding of that affinity for that culture comes from? I mean, look, I think it comes, you know, my father was Jewish, but we had this Anglo-Saxon last name. My mother was uh, Presbyterian. They divorced when I was very young. I, my father was, you know, relatively well off. My, you know, my mother... Uh, we lived a very kind of middle-class life with my mom. And then I, every other weekend I lived a kind of fancier life. I never felt like I fit in anywhere. So I was always seeking out my place in the world. Um, mm. And we became friends with this Colombian family when I was six years old. And I just immediately took to them in a way that I wanted to be part of their family. And so they eventually... They, they had one of them came to the U.S. and we became very close to him. And then the whole family moved there when I was around 12 and they moved to they stayed at my father's house for a summer. And I stayed at the house with them because I just wanted to, to be them and be part of their world. Uh, and from that point forward, I just realized that that crazy family was the happy place for me. And so actually, <laughs> I realized there was a country full of Colombians. And I went and when I was 15 and fell in love with the country, my father married into that family. So then they became my family. And then, then I have a half brother and half sister who are both half Colombian. And, and then I moved to Colombia when I was 22. So it just, it became the sort of portal into all things Latino, which is now what my life is. But um, it just came from a really a, 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 a unconscious place of being very drawn to this particular family and through them kind of drawn to all the various cultures of Latinidad. When someone asks Ben Odell where they're from, <laughs> that's if they ever ask you, how do you identify? I'm a gringo. That's what I always say. I'm just a gringo. So you, you wouldn't say you're 
Latino, quasi Latino. Listen, I, I'm the greatest compliment I ever get is that I'm an honorary member of the Latino community. <laughs> um, right. But, but that's as far as I'm, uh, you know, able and willing to connect my identity. I'm just a fan. Uh, I'm just a fan. And I, you know, I was just out last night with a bunch of executives who are all Latino, um, who um, I work with, with one of our deals. And as we were sitting there talking and just having a really lovely dinner that had nothing to do with business, I said to him, this is why my life is about being surrounded by Latinos. It's just more fun for me. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> say it's more fun for everyone. I don't want to generalize, but for me, I connect to the warmth of, of, and it, th these happen to be Mexic, Mex there was mostly Mexicans. Uh, no, sorry. There's one Mexican American, one Guatemalan Italian, one, um, uh, two Argentinians, one Argentinian Jew, and the other one Ar Argentinian, I don't know what is he, the, the, how he identifies religiously, uh, and then one Venezuelan. And we just had the best time. And that, that, that sort of everything that's made me happy in my life has been connected in some way to uh, my uh, affinity for and love for, you know, uh, Latin America and the U.S. Latin, Latino community. When did you get the itch to start producing? Uh, well, I know exactly when I got it. I was a screenwriter. I, I, you know, I moved to Columbia when I was 22. I worked as a Spanish language screenwriter, TV writer, created a bunch of shows, did that for eight years. Um, right at the end, I wrote a feature film called Golpe de Estadio, which came out in Colombia in 1999. Um, and the producer of that um, show, uh, sorry, movie, was an Italian producer, and mm. um, he wanted me to write the next uh, movie for the same Colombian director named Sergio Cabrera. So I flew to Rome to meet with him, and uh, he uh, said, look, I want you to come in with ideas every day, and we'll go out to lunch, and you'll tell me your ideas, and by the end of the week, we'll have this thing cracked. And I was like, oh, is this... Is this how it works? Which, no, <laughs> is this not. how it works? Yeah. And it was, it was so weird. And every day I would come and sit to sit with him and give him ideas. And he hated all my ideas. At some point I went, but, but over the course of the week, he told me about his life. And it turns out he, he had studied to be a rocket scientist, actually, literally. Uh, and, and he stumbled into the movie world. He hadn't really like the, the way he ended up coming into producing was he, had run a studio in Italy. He ran it into the ground, actually. And so he was trying to figure out his next chapter. And he met Sergio Cabrera, who was in the middle of finishing a movie. And he found the finishing funds for that movie. And then he just sort of rode this train with Sergio Cabrera and produced a bunch of movies with him. But, you know, when I heard his story, I was like, this guy didn't actually, he doesn't know much about development. So I said, why do I have to work for this asshole? And then this light bulb went <laughs> off and I said, I can be the asshole. So why don't I be the producer? Oh. Why can't I go a little further up the food chain and be the person who decides what, what's a good idea and what's not. And because I just didn't like being put under his lens. Now, the reality is I end up having to do that every day with executives all over the place where I have to, you know, bow down to their idea of what's good or bad. So I've had to come to terms with the fact that you always have to serve somebody as Bob Dylan would say. But, um, but I, I did it because I felt like screenwriters were, uh, you know, 
I, I don't like where screenwriters actually sit in the the, the ecosystem. Uh, in movie side, on TV side, they have an enormous amount of power as they should. But on the movie side, they didn't. I remember I, I took these two writers out to dinner after they had delivered a draft of a movie and it was really good. And so we sat down with Eugenio and, and these two writers and, and one of them said, okay, why are we here? And I said, what do you mean, why are we here? So what, why are we here? What do you want to talk about? I was like, oh, I just want to thank you for, you guys did such a great job. And, and this guy is a very high level comedy writer and he sort of took a breath and he said, in 25 years, I've never had a producer do this. And I said, I don't understand how there isn't a bigger appreciation for that first part of the creative process, which is, since I was a writer, I think I can say this at least with some experience, I think the hardest part, which is starting with nothing and mm. coming up with the ideas and then presenting them only to be criticized and no, we don't like this and we don't like that and you have to start over again. But who, who was all these executives and producers like myself and directors and everybody else, like where are they coming up with that first idea that you have to present to the world? It's, very, it's much easier to be like, I don't like that, but if we do this and that, that's a very different process. It's editing, you know, but that, that thing of staring at a blank page or a blank screen now and, and, and coming up with ideas is by far the most interesting and difficult thing to do. And uh, I've been shocked by that process. So as a producer, I try to be as writer friendly as possible. And I take pride mm -hmm. in the fact that I think I think more like a writer than I do a studio executive. It probably gets me into trouble sometimes as well. But um, that is my origin story as a producer. I, I, I think I'm much more talent friendly maybe because I've been through the ranks of that. Um, and, you know, I, I feel the same way about actors. You know, I love actors. I love actors. You know, a lot of producers, ah, you know, you got to put up with actors. I'm like, why? We're all here. Because, <laughs> you know, right. We all watch something because this actor is so amazing and compelling. Well, you know what? They have to sell themselves. They bear their souls. You know, people, ah, they're crazy. You got to be a little crazy to be an actor. But that's what we love about them. And, and I love all of it. I love. So, yeah, I'm, I, I honestly like I'm a fan of every department. Uh, I love directors. I love what they do. I studied directing pretty, pretty thoroughly when I was in film school and I'm, I admire the shit out of people who can do it. Um, wardrobe, uh, production designers, I find incredible because they're part architects, part, you know, creative, uh, you know, mad scientist, part, you know, uh, contractor who has to fit it all into a budget. It's just, it's, it's such a, the collaboration of creating stuff is so much fun. And I think as a director, as a producer, I get to interact with all of them, but I get to draft off their genius. Ben, how would you define your job as a producer for those that are like, I've heard this word so many times yet. I don't know what a producer does exactly. Yeah. Um, I always love getting asked this cause I never have a really good answer for it, but um, <laughs> I would say on the one hand, we're like water. We fill in the cracks where needed, you know? So everything you do, every TV show, every movie, anything you do, your job changes depending on who your director is and how capable they are, how experienced they are, how capable your team is, who's financing, where the problems come in. If there are specific problems, you know, the two leads have no chemistry and what do you do? And, they, you know, I had a, I had a movie where the, it was a, 
I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to talk bad mouth anybody, but it was a, it was a mixed race story. And one of the, this is many, many years ago, but one of the, 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 the leads was openly racist and we didn't know that until we got there. And <laughs> openly there <was> like, racist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was like, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I don't feel comfortable kissing this other person because of this. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, and then you become psychiatrist and you have to figure out how to deal with those issues. You know, um, so every every movie it's different or or show. But what I will say every producer has in common is the ability to will things into existence. I would say that is the mm. core s- strength of any producer. Many of them don't necessarily have a creative bone in their body. Many of them are not particularly interested in movies, you know, or, or passionate about TV, or they, they come at it from whatever, but everybody, whether, you know, the best ones are good at everything. You know, the, the ones that I really admire are really good at everything, but, but every producer has that ability in order to sustain a career. When did you meet Eugenio Derbez? And when you met him, how quickly was Tripa Studios born? Uh, no, we met in 2005 or six. He was on Broadway and I was working with Jim McNamara. We had just started this company called Panamax Films and we had a deal with Lionsgate and Jim called me and said, hey, you got to go. I was living in New York. Jim was in, in Miami. He said, I'm flying up. We're going to go see this play on Broadway called Latino Logs, uh, written mm-hmm. by this guy named Rick Nahara. And there's this actor in it that you got to see. His name's Eugenio Derbez. Alien! La Fea took back my kid. No, not Betty La Fea. No, no, no. Jim had run Telemundo and sold it to NBC. And he would, he, the whole time he was at Telemundo, he was trying to get Eugenio to leave Televisa and come to Telemundo. Uh, and Eugenio would always say, yeah, 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 I'm going to do it, Jim. I'm going to do it. And he never, never did because he had a long standing relationship with Televisa. But I had never heard of him because I had my whole career in Spanish language television had been in. South America. Yeah. Yeah. And so I knew the South American star system because it was a little more aligned and the Caribbean, you know, Puerto Rico, Dominican, I was a little more familiar with that. And it all sort of filtered through Telemundo, which kind of focused more on that audience. But the Univision audience, I didn't really know at the time. And this is sort of pre-internet as we now know it. So, you know, you weren't as plugged into the world. So I had never heard of him. And I went to see him in this play and he was the best thing in the play. He was amazing. Turns out he learned English to, to perform because he didn't speak English. And when I met him after, he was so funny and so larger than life. And it was a kind of a big, broad comedy. Um, you know, it was, it was monologues from these sort of stereotypical and archetypal Latin characters. So it was like four actors playing four different monologues. And Eugenio did this one, this one role as a, as a, a uh, una abuela chismosa, you know, like this. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. grandmother, and he was just so so brilliant, and so and then when I met him afterwards, we went out to dinner, and he was so shy and so humble and so sweet, and I when I saw the difference between what he could do on stage and who he was as a person, you know, all the great comedians sort of fall into this category of of quiet, slightly introverted, um, 
slightly melancholic. There's a certain, not in the case of Eugenio, but in many, there's a certain sadness, Bill Murray, the sad clown. There's some version of that in Eugenio. Eugenio is not a sad person um, and doesn't carry trauma like some comedians, but he does carry a lot of humanity and a lot of melancholy. Um, mm. His drama comes from, his comedy comes from there. It doesn't come from, hey, I'm going to make you laugh, which is where broad sort of superficial comedy comes from. All of the great comedians come from this deeper place. And I could just see it. And I said to him just out of the blue, I said, you know, you could do, I think you can do anything. And I think you want to do drama and nobody ever lets you. And he, his eyes just went wide. He's like, how do you know that? You know, and you sort of know that about many comedians that they want to be taken seriously. Uh, and so I cast him immediately in this movie that we had called Padre Nuestro, which ended up later being retitled Sangre de Mi Sangre, but it won the grand jury prize at Sundance. He had a relatively small role in it, um, but he wanted to do drama. And I said, if you want to do this thing, we're making it for half a million dollars and you're going to have to change in your car and I have no, we're going to pay you absolutely nothing. And he was doing Latino logs and we were shooting in New York. So we had to work around his schedule a little bit. He's like, absolutely, whatever you want. I want to, I, I love it. I want to do it. And then we were casting a movie called Under the Same Moon around the same time. Uh, and Jim wanted to put Kate Del Castillo in it. And I wanted Eugenio. And I called the director, who's a friend of mine. Her name's Patricia Regan. She's a very talented director. And I said, you got to put Eugenio Derbez in your movie. And he goes, she goes, Ben, he's a comedian. <laughs> and I was like, you have to trust him. And so she said, okay, to her credit, she trusted. We flew her to New York. She met with him. She saw what I saw and she cast him in it. We ended up not producing the movie. We had it at Sun. At, Lionsgate, where we had our deal, we ended up not producing it, but she kept him in the movie and Kate and the movie, actually that movie did $20 million in box office between the U S and Mexico it was a $2 million movie. And it was the first sign of this market and Eugenio's hey. strength. And from that point forward, I was trying to put Eugenio in anything I could. I put him in this movie called Girl in Progress, which Patricia directed. With Eva Mendez. Yep. And uh, I'm trying to think some other things I cast him in or I tried to cast him in, but I was always talking to him because I really just believed in him in a way that was way bigger than where he was. He was huge, by the way, but he was a television comedy star that was doing sketch comedy and couldn't really- He was Latin famous. He was Latin famous. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, or Univision famous is what might be the way I would call him, because he was like, his audience he built through Univision uh, in the US and through Televisa. And then, you know, his shows would become big in Ecuador and Venezuela and Colombia, not Colombia actually, uh, Peru. So he's built audiences there and he's now built audience in Colombia as well through his movies. But, um, but you know, I just saw something bigger uh, and when he didn't, so our company, uh, uh, Panamax, merged with Televisa and Lionsgate to form Pantaleon, which became the distributor for the, the, it became the Latin division of Lionsgate. And I ran production for them. We acquired Instructions Not Included and put it out in the, mo in the, in the theaters. And that movie, as we all know, made hundred million dollars on a $5 million budget. Eugenio wrote, directed, starred in it. Um, 
And, you know, I called him Monday morning after that opening weekend in the U.S. and said, congratulations, it only took you 25 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> and But the truth is, um, you know, I started watching uh, what, what, what was happening with him after that. And, you know, he was getting kind of, tra- tr- tr- uh, you know, uh, paraded around Hollywood to meet with the studio heads, but he didn't know how to capitalize on that because he had built his whole career at Televisa. It was a very different thing. It was like they paid him a salary, they gave him money for overhead, they gave him money for writers, and he just sort of sat in this little bubble and he could create whatever he wanted in that little machine, his little factory, um, and did it incredibly well. But when you come to Hollywood, it's such a different mentality. And so after watching him sort of, he, and I'd call him like, how you doing? He'd be like, I don't know, I'm meeting all these people. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing with all this stuff. So finally I flew down to Mexico and said, you know, I think we could start a company. You have a, probably a six month window to capitalize mm-hmm. on the success of this. And, and I said, uh, I think we could build something. I think it could be, uh, we can build vehicles for you and, and make all your dreams come true and do all the things that you're imagining, but also do something that's bigger. That, that when you decide you don't want to star in the movie, we can still go make it or, you know, go do series and pod, well now podcast, not at the time, uh, and everything else that we want to do. And, you know, to his credit and, and, and well, not to his credit, to my credit, but he, he, he put his career in my hands and, and we went out and built this thing together. And, you know, it's been, um, I think it's, it's, it's exceeded both of our expectations, frankly, but, uh, it's been fun. How would you describe the storytelling DNA of Tripa Studios? So ever since I've seen Instructions Not Included and Overboard and, you know, all of the movies that he's been in, including yeah. The Valet. Yeah. I think the signature style, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but from from the external looking in, it, it, it feels like he decided or you guys decided that you were going to combine and marry Latino culture, like Latino immigrant culture in America with white American culture. Uh And so you juxtapose those two in one single movie, interweaving them in one single storyline to create a very almost immediately shocking uh, juxtaposition of cultures, languages, characters, rich, poor, um, and then making them do things that we don't really see on television or film, which is having them fall in love, which is having <laughs> all the things them, that happen to human beings, all the things that happen to human beings. But we know that society, especially America's history, has never really truly allowed these things to be mainstream or to be normalized. And it seems like Eugenio and you have decided to take it upon yourselves to normalize these images, to normalize these stories. And so did I, am I close? A thousand percent. The only thing I would say is it's easier in hindsight to sort of say, this is what we did than to, to, I would love to tell you that this was all calculated at that level it was more instinctual, but it really started with this. The thing that connects me and Eugenio as friends, um, but also creatively is heart. Like we're just big, we're both kind of big hearted people. Um, you know, I cry at, you know, TV commercials and, you know, I'm just <laughs> happy. but you know, we both love 
movies that can make you laugh and make you cry. You know, when you can do that in a single movie, it's just, it's, I don't know. It's, it's the things that I come back to over and over again, that he comes back to over and over again. Um, so, so we have this sort of shared sensibility that I'm not even sure we spoke about when we started, but we sort of knew it was there, you know, instructions not included, I think set a lot of the template. When we did how to be a Latin lover, it was, you know, the, the thing we talked about is like, if you try to repeat what you just did, you're going to disappoint, you know, and I talked a lot about M night. I can never say his last name. M night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. Thank you. Um, you know, with the sixth sense and, and, and then being saddled with how do I, how do I one up the, this massive, you know, that movie without the twist ending wouldn't be the phenomenon it was. I, that doesn't take anything away from what the movie was. In fact, it's admirable when you can, you know, surprise people. It's hard. It's harder and harder every day with instructions like with that, with that twist ending and the emotionality of it and the comedy of it. You know, I said to him, I feel like let's not let's set the bar differently. Let's go because he wanted to do movies in English. That's one thing to he's the first thing he said to me after the success of instructions I included is uh, I, I want to do movies in English. And I said, oh, honey, you just made a movie that made a hundred million dollars. It cost five. If you do this a couple more times, you, your children, your grandchildren will never have to work again. He said, I don't do it for the money. You know, I do it because I love it and I want the challenge of doing things in English. That's why I'm coming to Hollywood. And I really admired that, but it was an enormous assignment for me and him to figure out how to do that. And so, so you take that, you take the success from Shrugs and Uncluded and just said, let's do the opposite. Let's just do something that's fun and comedic, that has heart, but isn't going to, doesn't need the depth. And let's make it candy because it takes the pressure off what we just did. And Mm. The, 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 the thing that I said to him before we started is we need something that the title and the poster uh, will make people laugh and say, I don't know who that guy is, but I might want to go see that movie. Because if you're going to do it in English, we know his audience, hopefully, we didn't know, but we hoped his audience would follow him to an English language movie. But we also wanted to make sure that, um, that we were um, starting to build a crossover. And so we said, you know, you're going to be the vehicle, but we want to surround you with stars. Like it was really the formula that we followed. Now, you, one might argue that today, how to be a Latin lover could be a, considered, you know, a little bit uh, politically incorrect for, for where we are. You know, it intentionally leaned into stereotypes and then tried to break them. But, but I understand, you know, if there would be criticism today, that was when we started, it was not, it was not an issue and it wasn't that long ago, but so we started there just sort of thinking, let's, let's do it that way. Then the, the rule of thumb was we need to be organic. So when things should be in Spanish, they must be, which was, you know, with he and Salma, they're never going to speak in English to each other. That doesn't make any sense. And then as we were casting the kid, we had a cat, you know, it's very hard to find kids. It's very hard to find bilingual kids, very hard Latin, like all the things that we needed it to fit. So when we found our, our actor who was amazing, and, you know, is in Acapulco too, our TV series. Um, mm -hmm. He, he spoke Spanish, but not very well. His, his father was Guatemalan, I think he spoke like five languages, but he didn't speak Spanish well enough to act in it. And so we said, look, look, he, as many, you know, we observed all of this over time, 
many families, the parents speak it, they speak in Spanish to their kid, he answers in English. You know, that's, that's a story we've heard many times. So we, we tried to be as organic as possible. So all of a sudden, you know, 20, 30% of that movie was in Spanish. Um, and that was really not about pandering to the Spanish speaking audience. It was about being authentic. Um, but it ended up adding layers of authenticity and specificity. And those became sort of trademarks of the things we've done since, both without mm. Coco, with Overboard, with the valet. And what we're really doing is trying to be authentic in that, in that situation. But what else really, I think, has been the through line to our stories, and you and I have talked about this before, uh, is assimilation, you know, and it's Latinos, the story of Lat Latinos in the United States is a story of assimilation, very different from the African-American experience because their history is so different. You know, the African-American experience starts with the original sin of the United States. And because of that, it defines, you know, their, their, their history in this country is in, in such a different, obvious, difficult, horrible way that also defines storytelling. It defines, whereas with L Latinos who, you know, mostly I would say came to this country looking for a better life at some point or the, or the border moved, depending on where they lived, they were in Mexico and then it became the US. But mostly it was, you know, Latinos coming to this country and wanting a better life and therefore having to assimilate and having to give up parts of themselves. And so we like to look at that part of the Latin American in the, coming to the US as part of that reality. I mean, what you have to also remember is Eugenio is a Mexican born actor and we are never gonna be able to make him a Mexican American. He's, he cannot neutralize his accent to zero. It's just impossible. You know, he's 60 years old and he started speaking English when he was 42. So you're never gonna take the immigrant out of him. So it is part of his story and it's part of his character, no matter what character it is. So that begins to define how we build things as well. Um, so all those things sort of take into, you know, the, the, our, our sensibility for humor and heart, uh, our, our desire to tell stories that are authentic and therefore will naturally flow between English and Spanish. And this sense of, you know, studying assimilation and how does it impact and affect all those things are, you know, thought out and considered deeply before we write scripts. We talk to our writers a lot about them as we work through things. Uh, and by, by the way, we have a ton of things in development and a lot of it intersects with these ideas too. And then a lot of it doesn't. I mean, we have a lot of different stuff in development as well, but. Well, we were just talking about The Valet. This is one of your upcoming projects that's hitting Hulu on May 20th. It's a remake of the French hit film from 2006. Yeah. When did the idea to make this movie happen? And why did you guys want to make that specific film happen? Why didn't you just come up with an original story that matches all the templates, traits, elements that constitute your signature style of humor and heart? Why a remake? <laughs> and we've made a few. Um, yeah. You know, look, uh, part of it, well, the remake situation is one where when we started our company, we had zero on our slate. So I said to Eugenio, I think the fastest path to a couple of movies is going to be looking at remakes if we find the right ones, right? Ironically, the first thing we made was an original, but 
Um, but we were, had these things in motion. The valet in particular, Jim McNamara, when we started, Jim was the chairman of Pantaleone and my mentor and a good friend. And, and when we started our uh, three pass, he called me and he's like, you got to see this movie, The Valet. It's perfect for Ohen. And I had seen, I remember when it was in theaters, I'd never watched it. Um, I watched it, saw, saw the genius of it. I forgot who I called, but somebody, and they're like, oh, yeah, you'll never, get, I think it was our agent at the time. He's like, you'll never get to the rights of that. Peter, the Farrelly brothers had them. That, that's, the remake rights have just circulated all over town. There's tons of money against it. Don't even bother. Hmm. So my next move, this is, by the way, uh, willing things into existence, okay? <laughs> this is where the producer gets. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. I, I was like, okay, who originally made that movie? And it was the Gaumont in France. And uh, I called them and said, hey, uh, uh, curious, are the rights available to the valet? Oh, funny you should call. They just became available two months ago. Oh, my God. I said, how much money is against it? Because, you know, every time you develop, depending on how deals are made, oftentimes there's money against those, those properties, but the way the Gaumont had negotiated their deal, they got the rights back clean. So there was nothing against it. The rights were available. Nobody was really aware uh, they were available. And we went about the process of getting them. That was not an easy process. The original take that we brought was, was really kind of a straightforward comedy that was leaning more into class than it was at all into uh, race and race and ethnicity um, at all because Obama was president, and that's right. I think we all felt like we live we're living in a country that was evolving in a very positive way. I'm not saying that we had cracked all the problems for sure. That's clear now, but but I think we were all in an optimistic place and didn't want to sort of lean into the, these negative culture clashing ideas. We all know what happened after Obama and 2016, you know, right? Yeah. Um, a year that will go down in infamy and, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but at that point we said, we have to rewrite this whole thing. Like it's no longer, there, there's no way you can tell the story of a, of a valet and a famous actress and not talk about this. I mean, you could, you could make the famous actress J-Lo, which was proposed to us. She's a great actress, very funny. I, it seems less interesting than crossing boundaries um, in this way. And so we started over again and we, we, we went back to our wow. writers uh, who had written Overboard and said, guys, we can't pull punches on this. Now, you've seen the movie. We don't lean into it in a righteous way. We don't even put our finger on it uh, in any way that's, it's just there. It's there. There's clearly tension. There's clearly white privilege living in one place. And then you have your Latinos and Koreans all living in this other world. And, you know, and the, the, the clash there is clearly a clash that is also around ethnicity, ethnicity and, but we don't put our finger on it because we don't need to. It's, 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 it's there. I mean, it, we're, we're so as an audience, so attuned to these things, especially the Max Greenfield character and sort of who he is. I mean, he's, he's a thinly veiled uh, representation of, uh, of somebody we can all guess um, who it is. <laughs> yeah. it. You gotta see the movie to figure it out. Hey, look, GT. Actually, I prefer the Q4. 
Better turn your radius. Have a nice day, sir. I can't do this. Goodbye, Vincent. Goodbye, Vin. Olivia, please don't go out front. There's paparazzi. You're being reckless. Call me when you're divorced. <laughs> are you all right? People I'm, are I'm looking. Sorry. I never thought I would get hit by a parked car. No, 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 no. Ah! Earhart opens in five days. I can't have this getting out there. What if we find the other guy in the photo and we pretend to be a couple? I'll do it. Olivia Allen is going to go out with me? The famous actress? Yes. The beautiful one? Yes. With me? Correct. <laughs> My sister? Put you up to this. You got me. <laughs> Showtime. Get ready for you. Say something I'm going to laugh really hard. I don't understand. <laughs> Are you some kind of sex god, Antonio? I'm not a sex god. <laughs> What's happening here? So you ready for the night? Yeah. The flashing lights? Yeah. Mi hijo está saliendo en la tele. Elegante como su madre. Antonio, this is your first premiere, right? ¿Qué le pasa? ¿Por qué pone cara de menso? What do you see in my brother? He's decent and kind. Antonio, I love you. I'm famous too. Which is surprisingly hard to find. Was that your ex? I have been trying to get her back. Now the big gems. Maybe we'll both do what we want out of this insanity. Oh my God. What? He's here. No. Nothing happened. Whoa. And I slept in my pants. See? I have some thoughts I'd like to share with you about how, what I experienced in this film. But yeah. before we do that, you mentioned that you had to rewrite the valet to kind of match a little bit more in the more contemporary times. And you decided to go with Bob Fisher, Rob Greenberg. Yep. Uh, off of the story from Frenchman Francis Weber. And you picked Richard Wong, uh, an Asian director, to also direct this film. Yep. I think that my natural question is, you got Eugenio, we know what Eugenio can deliver, uh, and we know what the signature style is. Yep. Why go with Bob Fisher, Rob Greenberg to write it when you could have had Mexican or Latino writers? And why not go with a Mexican director as opposed to an Asian director in this particular film, why yep. that? Yep, um, valid question. You know, not for lack of looking. Certainly, we we met with a lot of writers and directors who are Latino, and it's always our first instinct, our first mandate. Um, we, you know, I I the last I checked, you know, of the sort of seventy or so projects we have in some you know level of, of of development, you know, it's, we're probably at 87%, you know, Latin driven creators, you know, there are things that fall outside of that. Um, but in this particular case with Eugenio, you know, he's, we are looking for sensibility that works with our sensibility. And in a way, in order the, what I always said to Eugenio is, if, if our movies don't work, then we're not doing anyone any favors. And so we have to, you are the 
the filter of this, right? You're a producer on this, you're the star. You can make sure that we are being authentic and true and, but let's find the people that we feel like resonate sensibility wise to support your vision. So I always say at the end of the day, all things being equal, we're always gonna hire Latino, we want to, but in this case, we couldn't find the sensibility that we wanted or couldn't, we found kindred spirits with these guys. Their take on it was exactly what we wanted. Through the experience of Overboard, we had seen, they had really learned how we work and they know how to plug in Eugenio to make sure that we're being authentic. And so we just went with the people that we felt were going to render the vision that we had the best way possible. When it came to directing, um, we met with a bunch of Latino writers, uh, directors, but here's the thing. What we said was if we don't find that Latin director, and by the way, Eugenio would have directed this had he been available. He just didn't have enough time to prep before we, we talked about it, but he had other things and there's just no way to get him to do it. Um, we didn't hear the right take from, from the people that we talked to. We didn't feel like they got it necessarily. Wow. Uh, or, or they didn't Here's here's the other thing you have to keep in mind. This was a, not an inexpensive movie. It's a $30 million movie. You know, you have to, you have to have a certain level of experience to get the studio to say yes. So we're keeping all these things in mind as well. Um, so Rich Wong, I'd worked with as a DP, he was a friend, um, as a DP, I knew he was incredibly cinematic. I called him to be the DP on the movie when the movie was greenlit before the pandemic. And he said, I'm not doing that anymore. I said, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm directing. I said, directing. Hmm. What, what did you direct? I directed this little com comedy called Come As You Are. I'm 24 years old. Besides my mouth, about the only other thing that works on my body is my junk. I need to know what sex is going to be like for me. What if I told you there was a place for guys like us to get seriously laid? So I was like, hey, I need to see your movie. And I watched it. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, you're a real director. This is really funny, but it's very grounded, very restrained. It comes from, the comedy comes from a dramatic place. It's a, it's, it's a the movie should not work because it's about a blind guy, a paraplegic and a quadriplegic who go on a road trip together to a brothel in Quebec. Okay, that already sounds funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds funny, but like dangerously politically incorrect. Um, it was based on a true story. He directed it with so much humanity, so much heart. And so put that away, because I set that aside. We were cut to during the pandemic, because Rob and Bob, who had directed Overboard, were actually going to direct the ballet. They took another job. They couldn't do it. Um, and we started looking for uh, directors. And we went out to the town and said, our first priority is Latino directors. Let's see all the comedy directors. There aren't a lot of them, to be honest, right now, at a level that can direct a studio movie, which, by the way, means you've directed at least a, a strong comic feature, comedic feature. Maybe you have some television experience with the right sensibility because here's the thing there there may be people out there that have done great stuff but is it what the valet is because you have to align tone tone is a huge thing 
Right. You can't have Guillermo del Toro, you know, do the valet. Just the sensibilities are different. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I mean, the one director that has done things similar is a guy named Gaz Alzraki, uh, who was not available anyway. Um, because he had done something called uh, Nosotros de los Nobles, which had, it was a very character driven, grounded comedy. Um, but we just didn't find that person. We just couldn't find that person. So what I said was the second level, if we can't find the Latino, is um, the uh, an, a, somebody who's very connected to the immigrant experience. Because this is ultimately a movie about, it's a love letter to immigrants. And so I started getting lists of directors and I saw Rich Wong on, on a list and I, he hadn't occurred to me. It came in through his, his agency. And I went, holy shit, I wonder, because Rich had told me he had gotten, he was doing a movie for, a big movie for Disney. And so I was like, he's probably not available, but I called him and I said, Rich, are you, yeah, I am available. I'm going to send you a script. He calls me back the next morning. He's like, holy shit, I have to direct this movie. And I said, wow. tell me why. And he said, because this is a story of my father. And huh. Rich grew up in Chinatown in San Francisco. His grandparents came from China. His father was... Chinese American, but as he will tell you, if you grow up, the the children of immigrant Chinese in in Chi in Chinatown in the United States in San Francisco in the big one, um, you're still not assimilated to the rest of the country. Mm. And so he really grew up in this immigrant community, and he said, because this is all a story about this beautiful person who's invisible to the world which I is, is this, this is what Eugenio and I said was, this is the, the, the reason this, this story could be so powerful because the valet is about somebody who's invisible. And if it's done right, not like the original, the original is more of a puzzle. It's a great movie, but it's a, it's a puzzle. It's, it's emotionally, it's really not emotional. It's, it's a comedy. It's a, it's a screwball comedy. One door opens, another door closes. Ha 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 ha. But for us, it was like, if you can make this character, invisible not only to and this was the mandate we gave the writers not only invisible to the clients who hand them their keys but to the other valets who talk over him as which you saw the movie you know that's how it sort of set up and his own family that doesn't you know he's that guy in the family that everybody takes for granted by the way in my colombian family the one i grew up with there was this exact person who was the most noble human humane person in the family and everybody knew they could count on him. So they stepped all over. Um, and so true, true, true. I know people yeah, like that too, man. Of course. And so Rich said, that was, that was my dad. My dad is this beautiful human being, but I think he doesn't even necessarily always uh, appreciate his own value in the world. And I appreciate it. And I want to celebrate that. And I said, this, this is the guy because you can see in his movie that he can do comedy. You can see that there's heart, but there's also his connection to the material was emotional because if it, it, it you know, every other director who came in is like, I know how to make this funnier. Like, we all know how to make it funnier. Eugenio can make it funnier on his own. And I'm not saying that's not hard to do and it's not important, but that if that's your priority, then you're missing the thing that's so powerful. And we couldn't find anybody who spoke more to the emotional side of it than rich. It was so personal to him. And that's what ultimately makes commercial content. Great is when there's this personal voice so that it doesn't feel like it's canned comedy. 
there's something special and magical. And I think Rich brought it in spades in a way that I don't think uh, was easy to find, you know, frankly. And we hadn't found anybody who whose first instinct was to talk to us about the emotionality and how moving this story was. They were talking about the comedy. And that was not the obvious choice, maybe, because of that. But thankfully, Lionsgate saw Come As You Are, and then Rich did an amazing pitch. And everybody went, holy shit, this could be a really special movie in his hands. And I think he over-delivered on it, frankly. Probably the most meaningful part to me was the poverty mentality, which was a central theme mm. of Antonio, Eugenio's character in the film. It was that one moment, that pivotal scene to me, probably the best scene in the movie to me, which was where his ex-wife says to him, I think it's time we got the divorce. <sighs> Me last night. I know, but then I couldn't stop thinking about all the money that you turned down. And, and tell me, you, you walk through life like you don't deserve much. How do you think that makes me feel? I want to be with someone who feels like they deserve the best of everything. Meaning, you have no self-love. Mm -hmm. It's a poverty mentality that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's not only happened to me. It's happened to my friends. It's happened to my family. It's happened to a lot of the Hispanics that I've been to. It's poverty makes you look at the world in a particular way that you don't deserve anything. Mm. And so in Antonio, I saw parts of me, parts of my family, parts of my friends, parts of my community, and any other immigrant that has been poor, that has been told you can't do something, and that you don't accept love for yourself. So they mm. step on you because you feel you deserve it. You project failure. And even your wife, your kids just can't deal with it. Mm. They want somebody who respects themselves. And so that scene to me, like I had to pause the movie. Wow. I had to kind of like take a minute to just like soak that in because I had never really seen another movie do that. You know, and it's like that shame of having white people see your poverty. Do Latino immigrants consciously and subconsciously seek white validation in America? And I think those were some of the questions that I feel this movie consciously or consciously was trying to get at. What was the, 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 the overarching themes that you guys wanted to hit and felt like you hit? Uh, first of all, I just have to take a little pause here and say, Jack, this is why you and I are friends, because I really uh, just admire how deeply you read into these things. And it's why I wanted to talk to you about this movie, because, um, you know, it's we're making pop culture and what you and, and I will say, like in in the years of doing this, I feel like you're the one guy in the Latin space who's really takes this pop culture seriously because we do we have to we scrutinize every line we screw what are we saying how are we how are we communicating to the audience how are we connecting you know it, and it's complicated and and takes a lot of analysis and i just love how how deeply you look at these things and how how seriously you take them and i appreciate that uh, a lot um so getting back to the business of the question, uh, thematically, um, I think the biggest, first of all, what you just talked about is a thousand percent one of the main themes of the 
movie and it was brought out so eloquently by Rich because that's exactly how he feels his father feels about himself undeservedly. He's a, he loves his dad. He's like, his dad is his hero. And, um, but so, so he latched onto that and really brought it out. And I think brought the emotion to it in a way that was fantastic. So did the actors, by the way. But, um, I think that, that is a huge theme. I think the theme of seeing other right invisibility, you'll, you'll hear it throughout the, you don't see me for who I really am. You don't see me the way I want to be seen. It's in there throughout the movie. That was the biggest invisibility was the, that was literally the word we used when we started. Right. Um, and so that was really important to us. Um, I think it was also about, um, about, uh, stereotypes and, 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 and prejudices that we have towards each other, by the way, towards the actress as well. And that's a hard one. It's a real, and, and I think, you know, Samara did, and she's a fantastic, amazing actress is going to be a huge star. I mean, she's just popping right now and, and getting booked everywhere, but she's an incredible comedian and mostly does drama. But she um, she brought humanity to a character that could be easily unlikable um, because she's rich and beautiful. Like who is ever going to feel sorry for a person who's rich? But, but she 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 was able to play the bitchy kind of asshole at the beginning in a way that felt messy and not not not. It's harder to judge her. And you end up really liking her at the end of the movie. Um, but I think that was really important is like how how we the preconceptions that we carry about each other and how to see each other more deeply. And that's not just, uh, her, you know, the actress and the valet, it's the, the valet and his family. It's the valets and with him, with, with Eugenio, it's the ex-wife when he's giving this, I don't want to give it away, but when he's giving this, uh, this speech, so to speak at a pivotal, pivotal, very emotional moment in the movie and she just takes this breath in because she's like, oh, my God, you know, it's every it's it's all, you know, it, look, it's in a one of the things that was really important to us is looking at the ways that we can looking at the commonality between us. What do we have in common? We need to have that conversation more and more. We all love our kids, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, you know, uh, extreme right, extreme left. We love our kids. We love our mother, you know, losing our parents is a hard thing for all of us. We have to get back to that conversation. So for us, where we try not to be divisive in our storytelling and make it us about them, it's about what are the things that bring us together. And Rob and Bob brought in this idea, you know, because I told him, look, let's not set this in East LA. A friend of mine once said, you know, if you watch movies and TV shows in Hollywood, you'd think 60 million Latinos live in East LA. You know, and I said, but but it is an L.A. story. So where can we set it that might be different and a little more interesting? And it wasn't we didn't set it that far from East L.A., but Pico Union, which has a big Salvadorian population and Mexican population and also a huge Korean population. And so by 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 setting it there, they brought in this Korean landlord and that whole storyline and their connectivity is really beautiful as well. So it's all those things. But at, at, those are those are sort of the big themes that we were trying to tackle. And my last question, Ben, is Carmen Salinas passed away uh, not too long ago. And it, since she was a part of the movie and since her passing, yeah. um, 
what was it like to have Kirk, uh, Carmen Salinas in the film? What anecdotes can you tell us about the impact that she left not only in film, but, you know, on Eugenio, on you and the industry at large? I mean, look, she's uh, iconic in Mexico. Uh, she's done like 130 movies and TV shows before she passed. Um, she has this very ribald sense of humor and she's just, um, she, she's just, she was one of a kind. But what was amazing about her, Jack, is she never had kids. This was her whole life. She came for this movie. She was not in good health. And she, mm. she needed two people to take her to set. She would ask to be brought to set way before she needed to work. And she would sit in a chair. And it was like a computer going into sleep mode. She would just wow. go, mm, right? Okay, Carmen, you're up. They take her to set again, still in that kind of that state, sit her down. She doesn't stand or move a lot in the movie because she couldn't move that well. As soon as the director yelled action, bah! she was like, she was what she is in the movie. She knew how Hilarious. much she knew how much she was she absolutely had. funny. No, I mean, amazing and full of life and, 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 you couldn't suspect the, this other side, but she was just basically like, I got this much energy in my battery. I'm going to save it for those moments. The rest of the time, I'm not giving anything to anybody because I don't have enough energy for it. And so it wasn't surprising that that was really the last of her energy and that she gave it to us before she passed uh, was amazing. Um, and you know, I ultimately, um, you know, I think in a way she's like a mom to Mexico. And so it's going to be really, mm. you know, we dedicated the movie to her. If, I don't know if you were able to yep. if you watch the credit oh, yeah. through, you know, um, she, you know, it, it's, it's moving and, and we're, we're grateful that we got, uh, that last kind of bit of lightning and magic, you know, uh, from her. Uh, so that's, um, yeah, that's very emotional too. It's a, you know, the magic trick of this movie and it's what we really were working towards, uh, over the years, you know, Eugenio always wants to, he wants deeper emotion, deeper emotion, but how do you do that and balance it with high concept comedy, you know? And I think that's ultimately our signature. I think Acapulco has done a good job of capturing that and we'll keep doing it moving forward. But, you know, we learned a lot by, by how much can you get away with emotionally, right? And, and you know, the movie starts, it's, it, it's the premise is goofy and high concept and fun. And then it gets to a place where I, I still cry watching it, uh, you know? So uh, hopefully, you know, and, and having seen it with audiences, it's really moving as well. But I want to share one last story because beyond... Carmen, I think one of the most moving moments I've ever experienced with this movie, and I really hope we can see it again and again, was a moment when we screened it at Lionsgate. You know, when we're editing the movie, we test it. And I, te I test religiously. I mean, from if I can get the, the director under the DGA has 10 weeks before they have to show it to anybody. So I always have this conversation with the director uh, and, and, and say, you have the right and I will respect it. If you don't want to see anything, this is a comedy. It probably would be good to get it up in front of an audience and to do it together. And 
every director, because I hopefully can build that kind of trust, ends up trusting that process. But around week five, we start testing once a week. And we bring in what I like to call civilians, people that are not in the industry, uh, who know nothing about the movie, so that you're getting really raw reactions from it. And the early cuts, it's painful because you know you know their problems and you're going to hear about them. Um, and everybody's an expert. And yeah, if I if you've watched <laughs> movies, you're an expert in movies, you know. So, but we were testing this probably around week seven or eight of the cut, and we brought in four or five uh, Mexican immigrants who were working class. Um, and, uh, you know, and had them watch. And then everybody was sort of um, commenting. And then at one point, one of the uh, uh, Mexican immigrants raised his hand. He says, is it okay if I speak? And I said, absolutely. And he stood up. It's, it's, it's actually emotional even talking about it. He stood up and with tears in his eyes, he said, it's the first time that I feel seen in a Hollywood movie. It's the first time I feel seen in this country. You know, what else can you say? That's, that's, that's what you hope for. You know, if, if, if you start out at the beginning of a conversation saying, this is a movie about invisibility and celebrating the working class Latino in this country, then at the end of this movie, to have somebody stand up and say, I, I feel seen, it's like, well, we did our jobs, you know? And, 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 yeah, the last thing I'll say too on that note is that, you know, I have, I've seen it in social media already. I see people, ah, you know, somebody posted it when I posted our, our release date. Somebody posted, you know, we're, we, Latinos are also doctors and lawyers, and you don't also, you only have to tell stories about valets and gardeners. And I, I said, I absolutely understand and respect that point of view. And I think if there were more movies and TV shows, that, that depicted more Latinos as successful journalists like yourself or musicians or lawyers or doctors or politicians, or, it would be easier then to, to have a movie like this come out. But, but my answer to that is, this is a big part of Eugenio's audience and he loves his audience. He loves them. I mean, really genuinely loves and worries about them. So he wants to tell their story in a way that I don't think it's been told because I don't think it's, about the stereotypes only, it's about how they're depicted. And we worked very hard to depict a very three-dimensional character who, by the way, if you watch the movie instead of judging the headline, right, what you'll see is a story where they, you know, he and his sister were sent to the US and he had to work so his sister could go to school and now she's successful. That's part of the immigrant experience. So we are depicting her story as well. And her husband also has a business and there's a lawyer who's Latino in the story as well. So we're absolutely depicting all those things, but we want to also celebrate the working class Latino who's, you know, the spine of this country in so many ways and has been vilified for the last, you know, eight years. The Valet premieres on Hulu on May 20th. Ben O'Dell, thank you so much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Just before I wrap up here, here are three Latin tracks you might want to add to your playlist this weekend.
yo no soy celoso. Bad Bunny. Orgullosa, reina. Nostálgico, Russian, Raúl Alejandro y Chris Brown. And that's it for episode 172 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Ben O'Dell for joining me on the show. And if you like this episode, please share with your friends and have them subscribe and leave a review. Your help is valuable in helping us reach many more listeners. If you would like to get in touch with me, reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. are true With overwhelming power the sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wicknuggets fries and sprites ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.